Welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. Our guest today developed the world's first speaker-independent continuous speech recognition system. The system was selected as the most important innovation of the year by Business Week. And that was back in 1988, when he was an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University some 30 years ago. In the three decades since, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee has led what you might call an interesting and somewhat fruitful life. He's worked as an executive at Apple, Silicon Graphics, Microsoft, and Google, where he led the company's efforts in China starting in 2005. In 2009, Dr. Lee left Google to start Sinovation Ventures, the venture capital firm where he today serves as CEO and chairman. Sinovation manages a $2 billion fund focusing on technology startups in China and also in the U.S. But there's more. In 2013, Dr. Lee was named the Times 100 Most Influential People list, and his latest book, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order is a certified bestseller, ranked number six on the New York Times Business Books bestsellers list as of our recording. And his TED Talk, which I watched last night, How AI Will Save Humanity, was approaching 1.5 million views on YouTube when I saw it. Suffice it to say, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee has long been in the center of artificial intelligence research and thinking about its implications on our world, and he's far from done. Dr. Lee, thank you for joining the NVIDIA AI podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So let's start with your book, AI Superpowers. Uh, Congratulations on the success, the bestsellers list, praise from all corners, diverse uh, voices. I saw in the poll quotes. Uh, But for those who are unfamiliar, what's the book about? Well, the book is about U.S. and China, both incredible powers, uh, are the two AI superpowers that will propel the world forward. Uh, A lot of people know about the U.S. side, so I tell more about the China side. And then also looking into the future uh, empowered by AI, what are some of the challenges and how might we overcome those challenges? So you spoke to both challenges that the superpowers in the world at large face going forward, but also uh, to some of the things going on in China that the listeners, the the world at large, might not be so familiar with. Maybe we can start with that first. Can you speak a little bit to what's going on in China in the AI community? What makes it unique? Uh, Sure. Uh, China has uh, uh, miraculously risen as an AI superpower. Only starting two and a half years ago, did the Chinese VCs, entrepreneurs, and government uh, throw all they've got at AI Um, much as a result of the Sputnik moment from AlphaGo beating Lee Sedong. Right. Yeah. And um, in two and a half years, people have been executing, new opportunities for AIs have been found. Uh, AI companies are making a lot of, some of them are making a lot of money. um, And the Chinese entrepreneurial approach match AI very well. And China has some very unique advantages, including very tenacious entrepreneurs and uh, a lot of data that's very important for AI and very strong government support. So today we're uh, at a stage where the world's most valuable speech company, uh, drone company, and uh, computer vision companies are all Chinese. So... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I, I read in another interview you did that uh, you'd contend that the Chinese have surpassed the U.S. at this point when it comes to uh, AI technology. As you just said, some of the most uh, valuable companies or the best companies in the world with, with speech and other related tech are in China. Well, I, I would say that U.S. still leads in research and okay. the depth of researchers and technologies, uh, but the China has uh, really already monetized 
and created valuable companies and uh, have implemented AI in many of the areas so that I think the, the productization, uh, revenue creation, uh, valuation of Chinese companies have already either reached or exceeded the U.S. levels. So in a, in a two and a half year t- time span, that's, that's an amazing statement, but obviously there's truth to it. I know a little bit about this, but obviously you can speak more to it. How much of that might be due to the Chinese government's relationship to the startup community? How much of that, as you alluded to, is um, the work ethic and the approach to entrepreneurship in China? How much of that is just the number of people using these products that turns into this enormous data set for AI companies to use? I think all three are absolutely necessary and important. But if I were to prioritize, I think um, data is the most important uh, because not only are there a lot more users in China, but the usage uh, that's being captured as data that becomes the fuel to train AI is just so much more than here. For example, all the Chinese purchases are captured by mobile payment. There's almost no cash and no credit card in China. Uh, people uh, use takeout for food, food ordering almost every day. There are 25 million orders per day. Uh, people ride shared bicycles. And that also is, has six sensors sending up data 20 terabytes a day with about 40 million rides per day. So all each of those transactions is creating uh, data that's used to train some kind of an AI. That is, I think, the, the most important that people really extensively use digital technologies for online and offline activities that are captured and reflected and used to train better AI that either makes a better product or makes money. Now, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of another another thing that I, I heard you say about the, the Chinese approach to competition and how, um, and, I, and I believe you were talking about, I don't know if it was ride sharing or, or food yeah. services, but how in the U.S. you have Uber and Lyft and many other companies competing in the ride-sharing space, whereas in China, you might have these companies compete sort of to the death, and then there's one company that's owning not just the market, but as we're talking about, all of the data. Yes. Should the U.S. be taking more of that sort of an approach to sort of almost changing the, the rules of engagement with a goal more towards consolidating and focusing on gathering all that data and advancing things like cash cashless payments? Um, and shifting away from sort of uh, looking at pure profit or, I don't know, I think I'm trying to get into what is it that the U.S. isn't doing or perhaps could be doing or just could be learning from the, the Chinese approach? Yeah, so there's sort of two parts to your question. First is on the Chinese competition and the makings of the Chinese um, uh, unicorns. And um, they're very, very different from from U.S., and uh, they're really private uh, sector. They're not, it's not something a government can make. Right. Um, I think this the Chinese environments, because it, there's such a large market, so much upside, and so many Chinese entrepreneurs are from families that have been poor for maybe 10 or 20 generations. And so there's high expectation and people work incredibly hard. Um, entrepreneurs regularly work 100-hour weeks. When they come to the U.S. and Silicon Valley, they're surprised at the work hours <laughs> that you guys have here. Right. I think that work ethic plus the tenacity and the desire to win and the winner-take-all approach is all related to the success of AI. Uh, 
For example, you know, Uber and Lyft are fighting it out, but the Chinese Uber, DD, is out there spending money on uh, leasing vehicles, insurance, uh, gas stations, and um, uh, car repair shops, creating a very strong wall, high wall and the vertical that gives them essentially a, a monopoly. So the competitors uh, really can't entice drivers anymore mm -hmm. because a driver gets all these benefits from DD that if they drive for an alter alternate, let's say a Lyft-like company, they may get their DD right to drive revoked. Right. And then Meituan is Chinese uh, food delivery compared to, say, uh, the Grubhub or the uh, Yelp in the U.S. goes very, very deep and uses both AI and incredible operational excellence to hire 600,000 people to deliver food to homes so that the food arrives in 30 minutes and it costs not more than 70 cents. So those kinds of driven approach to uh, with a uh, single desire to, to win and beat everyone else, the winner-take-all approach ends up with very powerful companies that um, actually can get a lot more data. So this is all related. So Meituan now is a $55 billion valuation company that has a lock in the marketplace. Uh, other people just can't replicate the delivery right. network. Right. And they've got all the data of all the customers' deliveries and restaurants, which gives them a very strong lock through the AI data loop as well. So I think the Chinese environment does tend to make one single strong winners with second place and later really taking nothing. And in the U.S., I think the competition is much more gentlemanly. If you think about companies like OpenTable, uh, Grubhub, Yelp, and Groupon, they're each in their little corner uh, viewing the others as not competitors but just different cuts. If there were such four such companies in, in China, uh, one of them will have killed the other three and gathered all the data and made all the money. So I think that approach is very, very um, complementary to AI. And I think countries, or rather companies in countries that take the approach, I think, uh, will uh, reap benefits. But that's not planned. It's not government. It's just uh, the companies. Now, the government, you also asked, um, does play a strong role. Uh, the Chinese government has come out with the uh, plan last July in 2017 that AI is put as one of the top national priorities. So that sends a very strong signal to cities and banks and um, car companies that they should think about AI, spend on AI, and embrace AI. I think setting the tone is quite important. Also, I think the Chinese uh, government looks at technology as something they should really embrace and push and are quite willing to push a technology before all the um, issues are completely worked out. And they will figure out ways to regulate it as the technology gets adopted and used. And, and I think that's a, an approach that's quite suitable for AI, as well as for mobility, so that there's faster landing and iteration of, for example, mobile payment, and possibly in the future, autonomous vehicles. And lastly, the Chinese government uh, really does let the private enterprise, uh, the VCs, to fund the AI companies and kind of let them grow on their own. But the government will put the, the big bucks 
really on infrastructure building, something private companies cannot do. Mm -hmm. So China is building a city called Xiong'an, which is the size of Chicago, with autonomous vehicle uh, readiness built in, in fact, with a downtown that has two layers, with um, people and uh, pets and bicycles on the top layer, Mm -hmm. and then vehicles on the bottom layer, and thereby eliminating the possibility of what happened in Phoenix with uh, Uber, that is a car hitting, autonomous car hitting a pedestrian. So that kind of massive infrastructure spending, and also in Zhejiang province, they put in a new highway with sensors to help autonomous vehicles. So I think that kind of massive infrastructural spending, not dissimilar from President Eisenhower's building of interstate highways, Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing I think a government can really do to accelerate the adoption of uh, AI technologies. Clearly, and I'm sure you're just scratching the surface, but there are big differences in the way um, the two countries, China and the U.S., are, are approaching the moment now and the future of, of AI and related technologies. Uh, some, lots of people in the media li- liken this to an arms race. Hmm. And I've heard you say, uh, you, don't, you don't care for that term so much. How should we be thinking about, you know, whether it's a race or you want to use a different term, there is sort of this, this perceived competition. Uh, and for the United States in particular, this longstanding uh, tradition, if you will, of feeling like a superpower and the leader in innovation and creativity and all of that. But how should the U.S. approach trying to keep up or just keep advancing with AI? And how might the U.S. and China approach uh, their relationship when it comes to the future of AI? Yeah, I, I think this is really not an arms race because U.S. is clearly stronger in research and technologies and China is stronger in implementation mm-hmm. and monetization. So if I were looking at it without regard for the the fact that there are two countries, uh, I would love to invest in companies that have American researchers and then Chinese entrepreneurs and implementers with China as a market and data provider. That would be the ideal combination. Uh, Another point, way to look at it is that there are really two parallel universes, the U.S. market um, and the China market. Uh, the two universes don't cross. The Chinese AI companies don't sell to American customers mm-hmm. or vice versa. So the gain of a Chinese AI does, will never come as an, at the expense of an American company. So given it's two parallel universes, even if we don't work together that much, at least it's important to look at the other universe right. and learn your lessons from it. Right. So I'm kind of um, looking at the current uh, trade dispute as um, not a very interesting or effective thing (laughs) on AI. I think uh, AI will move forward. China cannot be stopped from being very strong in AI implementation and monetization. And that there are so many ways to work together that if the trade dispute could end, I would love to see those connections to be rebuilt. But even if the two countries were to move on their separate ways, I think China will develop its own industry as would the U.S. in parallel. Right. Now, I was going to ask about this later later in the chat, but I think now is probably a better time. Your company, your current company, Sinovation Ventures, focused originally, I believe, primarily on Chinese companies, but also has become one of the first Chinese VC firms to really establish a presence in the U.S., 
Can you speak a little bit about what you're focused on, what some of your portfolio companies are are doing? And is there any of that, uh, what you were just describing, that kind of ideal scenario with U.S. research and Chinese implementation uh, going on anywhere in your firm's companies? Well, we're very proud to have been one of the earliest tech VCs, very early stage series A and B Mm -hmm. in China. Um, Our strength is in understanding technology trends, get in before the other VCs see it. So we've been investing in AI for five years. As I mentioned to you, uh, AI really became hot in the last two and a half years. So the first two and a half years, uh, we did it very uh, quietly (laughs) while we uniquely knew and saw the opportunity. And and we've greatly benefited. Some of our earlier investments are now uh, have become unicorns. So we have a total of uh, 15 unicorns uh, that we have invested in. Uh, starting from Series A and B, yeah. So not not just getting in after their unicorn, right. um, and lifetimes um, ago, yeah, exactly. And and also just within AI, the core AI companies like autonomous driving, AI for finance, AI semiconductors, we've invested in uh, uh, five companies that have become unicorns just in AI, mm-hmm. and their total valuation is about twenty one billion dollars. Wow. So we've been uh, uh, clearly the most successful AI investor in China. Right. Um, and uh, we're very proud of it and want to do a lot more. Um, our original plan was to uh, invest in the U.S. We have made some investments, uh, some of which have demonstrated the U.S.-China synergy. Mm-hmm. We've invested in a company called Fictive, which uh, is Silicon Valley-based and can help American uh, product innovators use the China Shenzhen hardware ecosystem. We've invested in some AI companies that use technologies that have been used in China. For example, one company developed a uh, grammar-checking, error-correction, essay-checking software. Very, very niche company, but for Chinese, many Chinese learning to write in English, that's a great tool that could be used. Uh, We've invested in a company called uh, Wonder Workshop. That's a great AI educational tool, Mm -hmm. and China is one of their biggest markets. We've helped them go to China. Now, going forward, um, I think uh, we need to understand how the CFIUS and um, um, export control and those issues, whether it would still make sense for us to continue investing in the U.S. Okay. Now, we've only put 5% of our capital in the U.S., so we can go higher or go lower, and we'll see what the opportunity provides. But certainly our investment in China are going doing very well. So if uh, the trade dispute causes us to do less in U.S., more in China, that's not going to really affect our uh, our company. Right. Uh, we're speaking today with Dr. Kaifu Lee. He is currently the CEO and chairman of Sinovation Ventures, uh, a Chinese-based venture capital firm, um, one of the most the most successful in the AI space in China, and as we were just talking about, uh, also doing some investment uh, in the U.S. Uh, previously, uh, Dr. Lee, it, it's a laundry list too long to read right now, but he was the head of Google China before leaving to start Sinovation, um, and has a book on the bestseller list right now, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. Uh, Let's switch gears for a moment and go back in time a little bit. You went to high school in Tennessee. I did. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, That was very uh, interesting. (laughs) It was in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So uh, half of the students were um, sons and daughters of scientists. 
So it actually got me a chance to uh, play with computers. Right. Our uh, high school, Oak Ridge High School, mm -hmm. actually had an uh, IBM. So I was able to learn programming in high school. This was in the early 80s, mid 80s? This is in the uh, mid 70s. Mid 70s. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So getting um, the early access, as you were saying, in high school to uh, having an IBM in your in your high school lab back then, did you have an inkling that you were uh, interested in, in AI? I don't know if the term AI was being thrown around quite yet back then. But when did you kind of first start to feel an interest in sort of machines and computers that could in some way replicate or even further the, the process of the human brain? Uh, I was very lucky to have had several professors at Columbia. One was this, um, Michael Leibowitz, was the student of Roger Schenk, taught me about natural language. Uh, John Kender, graduate of uh, CMU PhD, mm -hmm. taught me computer vision. And Sal Stoffel, who uh, still teaches uh, artificial intelligence at Columbia. Uh, and actually, D.E. Shaw uh, <laughs> was my professor in distributed computing. Wow, so okay. I had a great set of yeah. teachers who gave me uh, a view. And I really thought at Columbia uh, that AI was going to be the future. And it's, it's about um, you know, understanding how humans think and uh, how to use uh, algorithms mm -hmm. to replicate human thinking. Of, co of course, it didn't quite turn out that way, uh, <laughs> but uh, that was that that was the thing I thought was the most amazing thing that a uh, an engineering student could imagine. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that I, I watched the TED Talk last night, and I was struck, me being a bit more of an observer and reporter on what's going on than a, a hands-on uh, scientist myself, I was really struck by um, kind of two things. One was the story that you opened the talk with. Um, and I won't spoil it for people. You should go watch the talk. It's 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 captivating. It was a really good talk that you gave. But you were sitting with your wife as she was in labor, and she didn't know. But you had a bit of your own timetable because you were supposed to give a, a presentation to then Apple CEO John Scully. Um, and so there was kind of a race between would you get to see your your child born before you had to go to prepare. And then later in the talk, you and this was back in 1991, and later in the, in the TED Talk, you talk about uh, another huge life event for you. In 2013, you were diagnosed with lymphoma. So without spoiling the, the video, a big theme of it is humanity and love and, and looking at what's going on with AI right now and talking about the things that it can do and might do going forward and things that it can't do. And to some degree, those boil down to uh, love and, and humanity. And so thinking back kind of from the, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago to those, those first beginnings with, with AI and to where you are now, how is your, your view on the role of, of technology and AI in particular in our lives, how has it changed and how has it maybe been informed by, you know, these, these events in your own life or perhaps other things you, you've seen along the way? Um, have you kind of always had that vision that, you know, the humanity is, is core to what we're doing and needs to be kept in mind or has that kind of emerged? No, I think uh, my views when I was um, in school and started working was a very similar to a lot of people who are in AI today. You hear about people who believe that AI is going to um, basically reach human level intelligence and and uh, displace us right. and how to and and also how humans uh, might be plugged in and have the brains uh, 
downloaded and and those were the same dreams that I had yeah. uh, it's a very geeky dream and also I was a workaholic I think as you said I almost missed my childbirth probably because at the time I felt my speech recognition system was just another child that right. was equally important but having been ill in 2013 really made me realize that uh, what's important is not replicating our brain. It's also not just becoming a workaholic, and it's not about our achievements. That the things that really matter to people is our connections to other people and uh, loving back the people who love us and spreading the love around. And it's about following your passion and doing things that you love, not the things that make you money and make you famous. Uh, those are things you can do, but they can't be the most important thing in your life. So having had that awakening and now looking at AI coming to displace a lot of uh, work mm -hmm. in the society, I feel that it's actually a, a unique opportunity of enlightenment because well, for the short term, we have to get over the issue of how to help the displaced people find a new beginning, uh, whether it's retraining or redistribution of income. Those are things we have to work on. But assuming that we go past the current transition and go 30, 50 years into the future, mm -hmm. and looking back, we will actually find that AI is an amazing uh, serendipity that is coming here to take away the routine jobs, right. to give us enough time to think about what it is that we love and to spend time with the people we love and to discover the meaning of life, which cannot be working. And I think that conclusion is what makes me um, more excited than ever about AI is that we might be at the most pivotal moment in human history where we have been brainwashed that life is, is primarily about work. Mm -hmm. It took me a um, life-threatening uh, illness to wake up and realize that it isn't. Um, but I think AI might be that uh, serendipitous tool that will really cause people to rethink what it is that matters to them and whether it is the people displaced from routine jobs, they will find that their next job might be a job of compassion, might be a job of empathy. It might be jobs like nannies and, and the teachers and nurses uh, and elderly caregivers and uh, elderly companion. And that in that process, we will be spreading more love to the world and we will be able to uh, connect more to people. And very interestingly, AI uh, seeming like, like a great uh, technology, but it's actually here to help us find our own humanity. So what advice might you give to someone either who is a little further along in their life and worried about being displaced, worried even about as you were as you were speaking, I was I was all in with you, frankly. Um, but I can imagine people being scared by the yeah. prospect, even if if income isn't an issue, yeah. being scared by the prospect of I've been, you know, whatever my trade is my whole life. What do I do now? Um, so for somebody like that, or for somebody who's maybe a student listening, who's kind of just starting out and looking ahead and excited about the prospects, but also sort of wondering, well, wait, 
if if you know the machines take the jobs as as people like to say what advice do you give for kind of getting through the the transitional period well for people listening to this podcast they're probably ready getting ready for true. career in ai <laughs> and think you're all set <laughs> you got the most amazing job um uh, building ai and uh, creating value you're all set if you keep downloading the podcast yes but keep keep listening yes and and read my book <laughs> but for a lot of people who are doing routine jobs I think now is the time to rethink how to find a new beginning. For the people who are fairly young, doing a routine job, and uh, it is now the time to find something that um, maybe requires a little more skill, maybe requires a lot more human interaction, and because those are the jobs that aren't going to be so easily displaced by AI. I, th I think we're going to see, just as we saw, a large shift from agricultural jobs to manufacturing jobs. Uh, we're going to see a lot of routine jobs becoming warmth and compassion jobs, jobs where you really give happiness or uh, health or companionship to right. another person. And also we're going to see jobs in human connection in entertainment and high-end types of uh, tourism and uh, things like that, because people will have more money and um, they will have more free time. So there are many jobs that uh, will emerge and certainly the jobs that are essentially human touch service jobs will be a growing industry. If we think about just elderly care for the moment, right. yeah, the elderly care job is going to be ballooning over the time because uh, people will live longer and people over 80 need five times as much care as those younger. So there will be a lot of demand for those jobs. So for people who are in routine jobs, uh, think about what it would mean to go into a human service type of job. They currently might not pay as well, mm -hmm. but over time they should because they will be in high demand and then there might be subsidies to make them pay more. And also think about the level of satisfaction. At the end of the day, would an assembly line worker have more satisfaction or someone who uh, spent time making um, an elderly person or an ill person uh, happier or healthier? I think the latter would be more fulfilling. So that would be my advice to those who are in the routine jobs. Mm -hmm. But of course, to the young people, I think this is now the time to go after the creative jobs, the strategic jobs, the jobs of programming AI, the jobs of inventing the next technology, inventing the next drug. I think um, creativity is the most important. Uh, you know, if you are going to medical school, I'd say don't be a radiologist <laughs> or a dermatologist. Those are going to be displaced by AI, but be a medical researcher. Right. Invent drugs and help people live healthier and live longer. So creativity and compassion are the two um, most clear directions that uh, for, for young people. So we usually like to end the show asking the guests where they think their work might go over the next five, 10 years. I feel like we spent most of the conversation on that. So I'm going to ask you a slightly different take on that, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. You've done a lot. You've been through a lot. You've, you've uh, held some incredible positions and, and been through uh, a pretty rich journey personally, it sounds like. Where do you see the next five, 10 years taking you? What would you like to do? Well, I'd really like to make sure uh, that people see the opportunities and the challenges that AI brings about. 
So while my day-to-day work is investment, mm-hmm. getting good returns for that for my uh, investors, but I think um, AI does cause a few challenges. Sure, and that um, my personal experience as an AI researcher, AI uh, business person, and an AI investor is kind of unique in seeing that in multiple angles. So that's what brought me to write this book, mm-hmm. AI Superpowers, is so that people can read it and see the future and the promise as well as the challenges so we as a society can be better prepared. So I like to spend, continue to spend part of my next five to 10 years uh, becoming, staying an AI evangelist uh, saying all the great things about it, dispelling all the myths about dystopia and all those uh, silly things that aren't true, but also uh, alerting people to the real uh, issues at hand and help helping and working with other pioneers and, and, and thinkers in the industry and, and uh, companies and countries in making sure the, the world gets better and avoids uh, potential dangers that uh, AI may bring about. Uh, the book is called AI Superpowers. Uh, Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. Your company, Sinovation Ventures, uh, if people want to learn more, there's a website. Right. Um, anywhere else you would point people if they want to follow you? I understand you've got a couple of uh, followers on social media. Uh, yeah, please follow me on Twitter. My handle is my name, Kai-Fu Lee, or uh, AI Superpowers also has a website. Great. I will be updating it. Fantastic. Uh, again, doctor, thank you so much for your time and all the best on, on your future endeavors. Thank you. 